Okay. Uh, once again, uh, this is our second talk together with uh, me, Jason Robertson, and May Lee here. And uh, this time we're going to talk about a couple of really interesting cases that we've had maybe recently, or ones that really made an impression on us. And in the last uh, podcast, May Lee was just saying that, you know, that she is really interested in talking about uh, a case of gangrene, which I'm really interested to hear about. So, May Lee, take it from here. Welcome back. Thank you, Jason. So yes, um, in the my last uh, in our last podcast together, I mentioned the gangrene case. Um, the reason why I thought of it was because we were just talking about um, like stepping back and looking at the whole picture whenever we get lost in clinic, right? Which can happen quite often with very complicated um, diseases. So. I saw this patient in 2016. I remember I was pregnant when he first came to see me. Um, he was 88 years old at the time, and he was on warfarin um, as well as medication for high blood pressure and cholesterol. And so he came in with this diabetic gangrene in his toes. And it, um, the doctor said to him, that they expected the toes to eventually fall off and that he would need amputation. Wow. Very yeah, complex it, presentation. Intimidating yeah. first visit. <laughs> I was very intimidated. I was like, what am I going to do with this, right? Because he was on warfarin and um, I couldn't give him Chinese herbs. Right. So there goes that, right? So I had to rely solely on acupuncture and moxibustion. So I, I remember scratching my head and going, oh my goodness, right? But the first thing I thought of was there's clearly deficiency, right? Given the, the nature of the, the disease of diabetes, there's clearly deficiency. And given his age, um, it, I, I just thought, okay, I'm for, for sure I'm going to use source points. Uh -huh. And then I just, I just looked at which toes were mostly affected. And I went with the source points of those toes first. But of course I added source point of the kidney channel because one of the main things that I found during channel palpation, well, first of all, you know what, it was weird. He didn't have many channel changes. I palpated and palpated and I was just like, there wasn't much to find except for uh, maybe like very weak channel, weak feeling channels, such as like, um, like a sunken in feeling not much flesh in, you know, you know what I mean? In most of yeah. the channel. I mean, it brings up that interesting thing Dr. Wong pointed out that the channel palpation is useful for most patients, but in two big categories, sometimes it's not. That would be the very, very healthy young patients where their channel system is moving like a smooth river. And then older patients where there's like a deficiency in their channel system can't really mount a response that you can palpate sometimes. Right. They can't, right, exactly. But you did feel that kind of weird, that kind of deficiency everywhere without nodules anywhere kind of feeling. Yeah, I didn't find too many, no, I didn't find any nodules. Yeah. But the one thing that really stuck out was the kidney channel was very narrow. It was a narrowed space. Um, what do you mean? Like, yeah, yeah tell me more about what that felt like. Yeah, it felt like um, the, the channel itself was just really narrow, like hair thin. And, um, and oh. around it, the flesh was kind of a little hardened, almost. Like it was dried out, almost, a little inside? Yes, dried out, you know, and it was very difficult to needle kidney three because of that. Because I only had this very narrow space to get the needle in. Yeah. Sometimes I would have to do the, the, that point 
several times to get the needle in. Can, can we back one second? So where were the primary areas of gangrene exactly? Like which toes or what, where was it? Um, the first toe, the first toe, the third, and the fifth toes were mostly affected. It was strange. It was like every other toe. <laughs> and then it was all, it was the distal joint too, like further up towards the base of the toe where it attaches the metatarsals attach up there to the foot bones. Yes. That area was not affected as much. Is that right? Right, right. The tip okay. of the toes were mostly affected. And the, the nails had pretty much eroded away. Yeah. And there was so much oozing of pus. Um, and the very dark lesions, you know, where, where this, all this was happening. Yeah, you could just see it dying off, I guess. Yeah. I have great pictures that I can <laughs> share, like before and after treatment. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm sorry to have interrupted. So kidney three, you were saying, is very difficult to palpate the, the she, the space there for the channel. Yeah. And, yes. But you did find it in needle kidney three, and then that's where I kind of cut you off. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no problem. So um, I needled the, the, the source points of the affected channels. Um, and I also, and then from there, I was like, what am I going to do next? Now, here's where um, it ties into our, our UN law conversation earlier, because I was thinking, I was kind of toying around with the idea, should I choose law or another point category, right? Right. Stepping back and going, what am I looking at? obvious deficiency but there's also obvious stasis like gross stasis in the channels so i i instead of law i chose she cleft points yeah so i had the law and the she cleft point combination on the affected channels and, and those also, were besides so was besides kidney i guess you're saying what were the other ones yeah you chose and you're probably about to say it when i interrupted yeah so i did <laughs> the source point of kidney and the source point of the spleen because ah. we're talking about flesh, we're talking about diabetes, right? So I, that just seemed very obvious to me. And then from there, I did, um, so the third, the third toe. So I, I, I kind of attributed that to Yangming. So I did um, stomach 34. And I did, instead of stomach 40, which I was never really good at locating. You mean stomach 42, the, the, the source point there? Sorry. Yes, sorry. Stomach yeah. 42. I forget the numbers sometimes. That's all right. <laughs> so stomach 42, which I was never really good at locating. Um, I did stomach 41 instead. Mm. And then bladder. So the bladder, I did the bladder source and law. Okay, so and you did. So source and she cleft. Right, so you did UB64 and UB63. Yes. Spleen 3 and spleen 8. Yes. And stomach 34 is a cleft point, and then stomach 41 is kind of a stand-in source point to open into the foot, thinking. Which Dr. Wong sometimes does, because I yeah. remember saying, yeah, stomach 42 is not so easy to locate on every patient. Sometimes you can use stomach 41. And that brings up a whole other conversation I want to tack on at the end of this about stomach 41, 42, and 43. But keep going with the case. I definitely want to come back to those two points, actually. Yes, and then I added, um, so I did spleen three and I did spleen nine as well because of all the pus, right? All the dampness, the obvious dampness that was, that, um, was presenting with the case. Uh -huh. um, I didn't do any points on the arms because, you know, I just felt like I didn't want to do too many points on this patient. 
because he was so deficient. His channels were so deficient. And did you needle spleen three, spleen eight, and nine all three together, or were you kind of alternating around with that? No, I didn't needle spleen eight at all. Oh, you didn't? Oh, sorry, it was nine. Okay. Yeah, it was always spleen three and nine. Okay. For him. And then I added um, Ren six. Chihai, uh, Ren right. six. Sort of, sort of a, as like a general booster for him. Yeah, and fitting your diagnosis of deficiency throughout the channel system, kind of. Yes, yes. And then, yeah, that's, that, as far as needling, that was basically it. Um, oh, and then I added a rice grain moxibustion at the base of the toes. Um, on the bottom of the feet? Yeah, on the, bla the plantar surface. Yeah, yeah. The, what do you call it? PIP joints? Uh-huh, yeah. No, 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 no. It's more like metatarsal phalangeal joints. And so this comes from, I have to credit Kiko Masamoto sensei for this. Because yeah. Yeah, he always talks about the joint points. So I I, I did rice grain moxa at those, at, at the um, toe joints of the affected toes. Got it. Right. I can imagine that. Because I didn't want to do any... Um, local needling or like local moxa, but I didn't yeah, yeah. think that would be a good idea. Right. So the, those points just, to me, made sense just to, um, to improve the general circulation of those points. I mean, of those channels, I felt that those were a really good add-on. And then, yeah, basically after, I want to see, after two and a half months, it was about, I was seeing him twice a week for a while. Yeah, after two and a half months, the gangrene started to recede. It was very yeah. clear, like a clear um, reduction of the pus and the, the, the darkness was starting to go away. But it was very hard to get him off of processed sugar. And oh, it was wow. very hard to, <laughs> it was, <laughs> he was addicted. And it was very hard to um, encourage him to walk for at least 30 minutes a day, which I felt was very important for helping the circulation in the feet. Um, and you, but you had you had some success in both of those admonitions, I guess. Yes, yes. Eventually, the family helped out. Like, hey, you know, listen to the listen to uh, May. She she said you have to walk, and then they made him walk. <laughs> they made him stay away from sugar as much as possible, and um, so it took a whole year for all the gangrene, all the the dark spots to go away, and all the pus to dry up. And I assume by the end, he was coming less often, too, towards the last right. one. Right, right. Eventually, after about six months, it started to come maybe once a week. Yeah, after a year. But after a year, he was still coming to see me, like, once a, a month. Eventually, it was once a month. And, you know, after, um, after, about, two, after about two years, almost three years, yeah. Of acupuncture um, regularly. His his primary care physician said, "You're no longer diabetic," and he began to wean him off of his diabetes medication. And so his actual, but yeah, so he had noticeable change in you know the yeah the blood blood sugar levels, and so they were able to. What was he taking? Do you remember what kind of medication was it? Insulin? Has he gotten to that level? Yeah. So he was getting injections of in, insulin. Oh wow any difference in his gangrene or the tingling in his legs. So, so the primary reason why he was coming to me, because um, he didn't expect that acupuncture can reverse gangrene. I didn't either. Right. But his, 
primary, yeah, his chief complaint was ting like severe, constant tingling in his legs. That was the reason he thought he was there. The gangrene just became the focus because it was so scary looking when you saw him, I guess, right? Yes, yes. I decided to give it a try to treat it. I, I told him, you know, um, I don't know. How this. I said, your problem looks very, very um, severe. And I don't know if I can help at all, but try maybe after five sessions, if it's not at least 50% better, the tingling I meant, then maybe we can say you're not a good candidate for acupuncture. But That's after like three, it, yeah. after three sessions, you know, the tingling was so bad in his legs and feet that he couldn't even sleep oh. um, unless he was um, uh, sitting up in a chair. And that was very difficult to sleep like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> if he were to sleep uh, recline, like if he was to sleep just lying down on the bed, he would wake up like every hour or so because of the tingling, which is so bad. But after, after three visits, the tingling and the pain in the, oh yeah, he also had pain in the lower legs and feet, uh, was reduced by 50%. After eight visits, the pain and tingling completely vanished. And so were you needling him then bilaterally to get, since it wasn't both feet or were you still focusing on that gangrene foot side only? Oh no, he had gangrene in both feet. Oh, it was on both feet. So it was a bilateral, yeah. same toes on both sides. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, so you could after, see the channels where the deficiency, yeah, they were very clear where the deficiency was leading to this pain and tingling. Yes. Yes. But after eight visits, the pain and tingling was completely gone and the gangrene was significantly reduced. And then he was after, motivated. Yes. I said, hey, just keep coming. Let's see where this goes. And he says, do you think my toes can grow back? I said, maybe. And then two and a half months later, that's like after the 13th visit. Yeah. All the gangrene was pretty much gone except for a few dark spots in some of the toes. So like then he was just toe. coming at that point. He, of course, knew the gangrene had healed, but he was still getting improvement in the sensation in his feet and pain. That continued to kind of be a, a slow change? or he, the, the pain and tingling uh, went away after eight visits. Oh, okay. So he just wanted to get his toes back to normal color then by the end, and he kept coming. Yeah, he just kept coming. And then the blood sugar, that was even more than you expected probably, right? You didn't think it was going to go to that where he would have changes where he could change his medication. I never expected that to happen. I was just really amazed. And of course, some of it was, I mean, you were trying really hard and with his family to make dietary changes, exercise changes. So you were able to kind of gain his trust by getting such obvious benefit that he listened to you on lifestyle advice better than he did others, I guess. I think you're right. I think eventually because because it was working so well for him, the acupuncture, he thought, hey, maybe there's hope to reverse this thing completely. <laughs> so, and do you still see him around? Do you know what happened? or is? Oh, so unfortunately, um, he passed away earlier this year from old age. Mm. He, had, um, he had a pacemaker installed like, back in 2014. So his heart just, just stopped. Yeah, one day it just stopped beating. But I guess he lived a, a much more, um, I don't know, happy life, given what you you guys were able to all do together with him. That's an amazing well, he story. Got to keep his toes and feet, right? Yeah, then he could, yeah, and the pain. So his sleep is better. So he's happier. So many things. His amputation surgery was canceled. Yeah. So he got to keep his feet, right? Yeah. I think that's, I think that is pretty amazing. 
Yeah. So um, I guess you probably have not seen any. Uh, do you have other cases of like kind of skin, like major gangrenous kind of skin or like, I don't know, burns or other things that you've seen that this reminds you of? Or I have. Um, when I first came here, during my first year of practice here in Hawaii, I, I had a an, another um, elderly man also in his late 80s, but he had another issue. It wasn't, um, I, I, it wasn't gangrene. Um, it started out as just some kind of rash, some mysterious rash in his legs. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, no, it was just one side was worse than the other, and then eventually it affected both sides equally. And, but I was able to give him herbs so that he got better much more quickly because I, I had I was doing acupuncture and herbs on him at the same time. And would um, you say that, like, you know, this type of condition, uh, say a non-musculoskeletal type condition often, are you using herbs most of the time, a lot of the time? What's the, you know, the ballpark ratio of herbs to acupuncture only or acupuncture and herbs both? If I'm able to, I'll, I will give them herbs in such a um, severe condition because why not, right? Because right. We can use the more tools we can use, the better and the quicker they'll, you know, they'll recover. But this particular patient with the gangrene, because he was on warfarin, I didn't want to mess around with that, you know, because a lot of um, herbs can potentially um, react badly with warfarin. Yeah, the whole liver function has changed, so you have to be careful. Yeah, yeah because a lot of I would I would have to give him a lot of blood invigorating herbs. Right. And then perhaps you know just. Ex- um, the last thing you want to give someone on warfarin, probably. Right. Enhance that effect. It's too much. But if so, I'm able to, I'll give them herbs if they're willing to take them, too. You do? Yeah. So this brings up another question, which probably would be the subject of a whole other discussion that we could have another time. But I just want to throw it out there to see if you immediately have thoughts. I've been thinking about this for years, and I bet you have, too. Mm-hmm. How does uh, channel palpation, channel examination, affect our choices with herbs? Oh, yeah. Right? That's I mean, that's a whole thing. It's a big thing. Yeah. And I, it's, I can't get it out of my head because I'm doing it on every patient. But what do you think? What are your initial thoughts? Yeah. Again, um, if, if, if a question like this plays our mind, I, I usually try to keep it simple. I try to think of things in simple terms. And um, so, so first of all, when we're palpating, are we, are we feeling things that belong more to deficiency or excess and kind of take note of that? And that's a good place to start with, I think, if you're trying to kind of translate the channel palpation into herbal terms. That would yeah. be a good place to start. And then maybe would you go so far as to say even sometimes noticing the channel it's on and therefore the channel organ system and making inferences right. about that, about deficiency and excess? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That, that definitely should um, should be considered. So, yeah, you know, you find lots of, say, you know, hard kind of adhesions, the uh, the kind of hard GLO and, and even bigger nodules like it's spleen 8, then you're more likely to use more blood invigorating herbs, say, in a gynecology case or something like that. Yes. That's and one I can like, think of. The depth of the um, channel changes may also give us some clues oh. as to um, the chronicity of the case, of, of the problem along that particular channel. Right. Right. Well, um, while you're at it, because we have just a couple more minutes before we'll end this short discussion, 
Do you have any other, it sounds like you've really seen and, and, and somewhat through your own experience become quite experienced with uh, various dermatology approaches using applied channel theory. Can you think of another case or some interesting principles or things you've thought of about dermatology that you've learned in your work there? Yes. Um, it, it seems like with dermatology cases, um, non-gangrene, of course, mm -hmm. there, there's always some, there's always some GA in involvement, perhaps through just the liver or and the pericardium. I, I don't know, but there's always some GA in involvement. And uh, a, a lot of time when you add GA in points, it can um, enhance the treatment effect. So that you find that Julian, in a wide variety of dermatology, you kind of keep coming back to that as a background theme a lot. Yes, yes. I wonder about because um, the connection between the pericardium and the heart and how a lot of um, itching conditions are related mm. to the heart. Perhaps that's where the pericardium, the hand Julian, comes into play. Yeah. And that, yeah, so maybe that is an aspect, you know, Dr. Wong was really, you know, careful sometimes, or careful, and he was working this out, I think, in his own mind in front of us, like, what is the difference between the pericardium and the heart, you know, how do we differentiate those, and of course, as you know, he would talk about Xiaoyin heart being associated more with the electricity of the heart, the beating of the heart, the valves opening and closing, and then Xiaoyin mm -hmm. being associated kind of with the meat of the heart, the blood vessels of the heart, and maybe what you yeah, and, and myocardium, and and so maybe what you're doing is adding another differentiation between when we talk about itching, maybe it's a little more pericardium than heart. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. perhaps. Yeah, maybe that's too much of a stretch, but it's a definite, that's interesting that you've kind of started to see this as a pattern. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any skin cases that are interesting? Um, In I definitely have, uh, yes. I mean, a variety of neuropathies. And one interesting, again, it's hard to make generalizations, everything always depends, but one interesting thing that definitely plays out in a variety of these neuropathies is, is it kind of like in the case you were describing, which is a severe version of one, mm -hmm. is this uh, interesting idea of combining the yuan and he, the, the, the source and C points together. Mm -hmm. And the idea of there being like you're using the C point to kind of get counterflow to get the channel moving correctly, you know, kind of differently than the, the cleft point idea or the lower point idea, just kind of oh, a big picture, get everything going. And then, to, you know, tonifying and invigorating and warming the channel with the source point together. So for a lot of kind of neuropathies, which we see quite a bit of, of course, after cancer treatments and, and in other cases, I'm kind of combining that source C point. Mm -hmm. Grouping. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've, I mean, even in the case you just described with spleen three and spleen nine, it's essentially that idea. You know, and it was interesting, May, is that I think when I first met Dr. Wong and began studying with him, it's, it, he didn't, at least, and he, of course, might have said, well, you just didn't see the right case, of course, but I saw him treat a lot of patients, and it seemed like as he, you know, was always changing, and then, you know, even into the last months of his life, how he approached things, mm -hmm. he began somewhere in that middle zone when I knew him, using source C points together a little more. I don't know if you noticed that, or maybe that was just something I just happened I have, to see. I have noticed that. I have noticed that. That, that, that was a pretty common point pair approach that he took when uh, when I was there observing with him. And I wonder if there's like a particular case or if, the, I wonder what light bulb, I mean, of course, it's not that crazy to combine the source and see, I mean, it's not like it's, no one's ever done that, of course, but the mm -hmm. fact that he kind of trended towards it, just, I was wondering if, if he ever said anything, why he started to like it more, or if he had a certain case that jumped in his head, does, do, does that ring a bell with you at all? 
Um, let me think about that. I don't. I mean, the the whole time I was there, he he would he would often use that kind of point pairing. So I don't know if it was just something sudden that he did. Yeah. Maybe I was just there at you know around the time when he already started using that approach. Um, and at least how you would think of that approach as kind of excess and deficiency, of course, combined together in the channel. Is that how you'd conceptualize when to do that? Yeah, it seemed it seemed like um, he always talked about the hussy points for um, for counterflow and also for rectifying um, the chi dynamic when there's something wrong with the chi dynamic. The chi, the chi. So, for instance, with the um, example with the tie-in, when there is a, a lot of pus buildup. Um, in the body somewhere. That's obvious um, external sign of dampness. But uh-huh. in, Dr. Uh, in Dr. Wang's words, he would explain it as the, the tie-in chi dynamic is disrupted. So the tie-in isn't able to transform dampness correctly. Ah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so a C point being one to think of in whatever channel system, you're, the, the chi dynamic of that organ pair, the paired organs or the organs alone, you might choose the C point. Right, right. That's what I always saw him. Um, that's how I, he, he'd always explain it. He would always say the word chi dynamic. And you're disrupted. saying chi ji, right? Chi yeah. ji, right. Yeah. Exactly. Chi ji. And not chi hua. Or something like that. Yeah. Uh, not chi hua. Chi yeah. ji. Yeah, so yeah, the <laughs> difference between those is chi hua is more kind of, I guess, and that's an interesting question that maybe we, we would set aside, but. Chi Ji is kind of the function of the of the organs in a way, and the Chi Hua is the development of Chi in the channels. How would you differentiate between those two Chinese terms? I, yeah, it's a good question, but I, I, I think Chi Hua is, is a broader term than Chi Ji. Mm-hmm. Chi, chi, chi Hua yeah. can, yeah, can mean um, a, a lot of things, but also like in the in the in the context of Chi in a broader sense. Rather than TG is more um, specific to each channel. I don't know. That's <laughs> just yeah. my yeah. my understanding. <laughs> well, that's a, that's something we can stew on and maybe come back to. So uh, I guess this is a time to wind down our second discussion here, Mei Li. And thank you so much for that. Those really interesting discussions of cases and and what what you've learned in that and. Uh, Everyone listening, uh, tune in next time. We're going to come back and talk to Mei Li again. So uh, see you guys next time. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, 